Hey, let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Last week we were looking at this portion of the Scripture where Jesus, up in the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is just north of the Sea of Galilee and, and south of Mount Hermon, they were gathered in that area, the Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus asked, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And and, uh, Peter responded correctly uh, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And, And we looked at, remember, just who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? And that's always a good question to ask, especially in America today, in the American church. Who is Jesus? Because certain fellowships in our country, they worship and celebrate a Jesus that's not a Jesus in the Scripture. And so it's important for us to know who Jesus is. And how are you going to know Jesus unless you know his word, unless you are born again. You know, one of the things that's so interesting to me is before I became a believer in Christ, I was about 24 years old. And before I was born again, this meant nothing to me. The the Bible meant nothing to me. And think of how torturous this is for a young man who is unsaved. And I open up the Bible and I'm reading genealogies, you know, in Genesis. And it it, it just totally turned me off. Because I'm like, what's the point of all this, right? Well, it's just my ignorance, number one. Number two, I wasn't filled with the Spirit of God, so the Bible wasn't coming to life to me. But an amazing thing happened when I received Christ, all of a sudden everything changed. And as I began to learn and as I began to study, you know, if the Bible is true and Jesus is real, then why not search him out? Why not find out? Why would you jeopardize your eternity based on you know, your feelings about God or your feelings about Christ or even the church? Forget about the church. Just focus your attention on God. But if your eternity is dependent upon your relationship with this one, why are we so flippantly casting him off like, nothing, like it doesn't matter? Why aren't the universities even making it mandatory that you go through a Bible class? Think about that, folks. In Christian schools, or even public schools, mandatory. We're going to get through the whole Bible this year. Can you imagine? (laughs) And it's that important. And yet it's not important to the world. But it's important to God. And ultimately it has dire consequences if we don't pay attention, right? Based on our relationship with Christ. So who is Jesus to you? That was a question last week. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a different part of this scripture. And this chapter has been filled with so much. And it was very hard to just gloss over some of the stuff. And we've taken our time through this chapter. And I don't apologize for that. Because there's plenty for us here to understand and to appropriate into our life. But let's read verses 21 down through the end of the chapter, and then we'll go back and we'll take a look at it. And the message this morning is gaining the world but losing your soul. That's kind of an ominous title. But it's one that's worthy for us to look at, of course. So notice verse 21. After this, 
situation where Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Immediately after that, it says, from that time, verse 21, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and notice and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him and saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming In his kingdom. Uh, An amazing passage, isn't it? And a lot of mystery here, but hopefully this morning uh, we can unravel some of that mystery. Notice with me back in verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Now, although Jesus was not looking forward to the physical and the spiritual trauma that he would be going through very shortly, he was not afraid to go. And he wasn't afraid to accomplish what his father had sent him to do. Yes, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, all equal, all God. Not three gods, but one God and three persons. But Jesus said, I must go. I must go. And when I think about this, there's some passages in the scripture. We're not going to go completely through all these, but there were things that Jesus had to do, that he must do. In Luke 2, 49, it says, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Remember when he said that to Mary and Joseph when they lost God when he was 12 years old? Remember that? Can you imagine losing God? You know, you're looking through your keys and your wallet, and I, oh, I got my keys, I got my, oh, but I lost God. So they find him. He says, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? In Luke 4, verse 43, he says, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities. For this purpose I've been sent. In Luke 9, 21, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes. In Luke 19, today I must be at your house, Zacchaeus. I must be at your house. In Luke 24, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man, be crucified and rise the third day. In John 4, he must needs go through Samaria. I love that. In the King James, it says he must needs. He he needed to go through Samaria. Why? Because there was a woman there who was engaged in adultery and needed to hear the message that Jesus had to share. He knew that he must needs go through Samaria. In John 12, the Son of Man must be lifted up. He must be lifted up. And he must go to Jerusalem, notice in verse 21 again, and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Now, there are three different areas in the Scripture, in Matthew specifically, 
And they happen at different times. And Jesus prepared his disciples for his departure. Because remember, at this time, the nation had rejected him wholesale. And now he turns his attention from sharing that message of the kingdom and really honing in on his disciples, preparing them for what's coming. And he had been preparing, and he's continuing to prepare them, and he's preparing us, by the way. But three different times in Matthew's gospel, and I have them listed up here in Matthew 16, 21, Matthew 17, verse 22, 23, Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. But the bottom line in each one of these instances, Jesus tells them, tells them at different times that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and then be killed and then to rise the third day. And think about this for a moment. When Jesus prepares his disciples, as he is preparing us for his imminent return, have you been paying attention with what's been happening in the world? Has it ever been like this, ever? No, not like this. Something is about to happen. And God is very much aware of it. He is in control. The elite globalists are not in control. No party is in control. God is in control. You can trust him. And don't lose heart, folks. Don't be fearful. But I love how God is preparing his disciples. He's preparing us. And why? Because he is the good shepherd. What does a good shepherd do? A real shepherd will go out into the fields before he takes his flock out into a field. And he will observe the ground. And he will look at plants and herbs and other things, making sure there's nothing out there that the sheep might eat that's going to be poisonous and hurt them. He's going to make sure that there's ample water nearby. So when they get their bellies full, they can waddle over on their stubby little peg legs and stick their nose in the water and drink. That's what a good shepherd does. And Jesus is the good shepherd by telling them in advance. What does it tell us in John's gospel, chapter 10, verse 11? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Is he your good shepherd? I love Jesus because he is my shepherd. He's a good shepherd. He's always been good to me. He's never left me. He's always went after me when I've gone astray. When everyone else is hanging out in the holy huddle, I've been wandering off trying to sample other dainties of life and in the world. And he's like, I'm coming after you, Rob. And he comes after me. He said, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, what does he do? He gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, notice, A hireling, he sees the wolf coming. He leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf catches the sheep, scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says, and I know my sheep. Do you know, like the song we sang this morning, he knows my name. He knows my every thought. Psalm 139, David wrote this. He says, you know my thoughts afar off. Before I even think of them, Lord, you know them already. I love that about God. That way I can't surprise him. He's not up there wringing his hands going, boy, I hope he doesn't mess up like he did yesterday again. He knows. And he loves me today, knowing, having that knowledge of me for the rest of my life, for the rest of my days. He knows my job in the millennial kingdom already. He's already got it picked out. He's like, Rob, I got a great corner then I'm going to stick you in, I'm going to put a dunce hat on you, 
And that'll be your job. You're, you're going to be an example to everybody else. No, I'm only kidding. But notice, he's the good shepherd. And Jesus said, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Speaking of Gentiles. He's speaking to the disciples, the Jews. You're my first flock, but I also have another flock. And he's speaking of us, you and I, the Gentiles. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And we have. We're all here, aren't we? Church, we're here. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Hallelujah. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. Jesus was no martyr. He willingly laid down his life. No one takes it from me, he says, but I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And he's telling his disciples these things. The good shepherd He's telling them what's going to take place, that they wouldn't be frightened. And aren't you glad that we have the Bible? We've been going through it. We've been talking about end times as well, things that are coming upon the earth. I'm not afraid of those things. I'm really bummed out because I'm looking around, in a sense, and I'm seeing things just unravel. And it's really disheartening to go through, but I know the end of it. And that's what gives me hope. That's what should give you hope. Don't ever worry about things. Jesus says, don't worry. And yet we do, and I'll be honest with you, I'm going to be transparent. I have, and I do at times, because I get my eyes off of Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm too busy thinking about terra firma rather than heaven. Eternity versus the temporal. But the Lord is still shepherding us today by showing us these things. And I love in the... Um, you know, and this is one of the things that the Spirit of God is to do. In John's Gospel, he tells us that I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter, speaking of the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it doesn't see him, neither does it know him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. Because on that day when Jesus rose from the grave, remember that evening Jesus breathed on his disciples. It's recorded in uh, John chapter 20. And they received the Spirit of God. Sort of like a preview of what was going to happen on Pentecost. But they received the Spirit of God. They were born again. He says, I will not leave you. And one of the Spirit's jobs, if you will, is recorded for us in John 16. That he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you, notice this, he will tell you things to come. And he will glorify me. Notice that. He will tell you things to come, and isn't as we're going through the Word of God, isn't he telling us things to come? Aren't we seeing things that are coming? And he, the Spirit of God, will glorify Jesus. If you go to a church, a fellowship, and they're glorifying the pastor, or they're glorifying the worship team, or if they're glorifying the founder of a movement... And they're not glorifying Jesus. That's a problem. And if it continues to happen, you might want to find another place to fellowship. Because if the Spirit of God is moving, He's going to draw all our eyes, all our gaze, our attention on Christ. He's the only one that matters, folks. That's why it is all about Jesus. It's all about Him. So verse 22 back in our text, So Peter took him, after Jesus said this, 
after Jesus said that he's going to be killed and be raised the third day, then Peter, the impetuous one, I like Peter, reminds me of me. I always, have you ever gone through this disease where you speak before you think? Anybody have that disease? Maybe it's Tourette's syndrome, I don't know, but I just, whatever comes into my mind, I just, I, I, gotta, I gotta open my mouth and let everybody know about it, and God's going, you know, it might be best if you just button the lip, Rob. Just button the lip. <laughs> but Peter, I'm, I'm thankful that he's in the scripture. Aren't you comforted by that? I love that. Jesus loved him, and he was a rascal. Such are some of us. Still, right? But this scene, notice what Peter said. He took him, he rebuked him, he said, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And this seems like love, doesn't it? It seems like a deep care, a concern for Jesus. But you have to understand that the thought and the motive behind it was demonic. It was a demonic thought because it would prevent the greatest rescue mission in all of eternity. It would thwart the purpose of God to redeem mankind. Do you see that? It seems all innocent. And Peter wasn't really thinking evil thoughts. But at that moment, he was being sifted. The devil just whispering in his ear, yes, a man who loved God and loves God but he gets this thought in his head, and it's an unholy thought. How many unholy thoughts go through our head every day? There's a song that we've sung, and the lyrics go like this. You live to die, rejected and alone, and like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and you thought of me above all. Right? That was the purpose of God. And anything to deter from that was demonic in origin. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, speaking, says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him, notice this, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It was determined before Genesis 1-1 was ever spoken that Christ would die for us. The plan of God, the plan of redemption. And this is the reason that Jesus came to earth to begin with. This was the purpose of the virgin birth. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, to pay the penalty for our sins, redeem us and reconcile us back to the Father. And the entirety of the Bible is a book of redemption. It's not just a history book, because it contains very accurate history, but it is predominantly a book of redemption from beginning to end, a book of redemption. And Satan, if you recall, tried to thwart Jesus going to the cross, just like Peter did. What are you saying this? You cannot die. We're just starting this movement. We've already got the, 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 the name cards in the mail. They're coming. Peter, the apostle of Christ. I'm getting that new car with your name on the side, Jesus. Things are taking off, man. People are getting saved. People are you know, healed and things are going great. What's this nonsense about you going to the cross and dying? Not on my watch, Jesus. 
<laughs> Not on my watch, he says. Satan tried to do the very same thing. Do you remember what happened when he's tempted 40 days? There were three different temptations, but one was, is really interesting. In verse 8 of Matthew 4, it says, Again, the devil took him up into an exceedingly high mountain, taking Jesus, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Notice the same spirit of Satan was speaking into the ear of Peter as well, and Peter wasn't even aware of it. But Jesus, being the all-discerning God, knew what was happening. And Peter didn't quite understand that before there would be a kingdom, there had to be a cross. It was a very foreign thought in his mind. It was a very foreign thought in the eyes and the ears of the disciples. This idea of Jesus dying, the idea of the church age, and then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was foreign for these men. But before there was glory, there had to be suffering. Remember that. Before glory, there had to be suffering. And this is something that even today in the church we need to remember. What did uh, Paul tell us? In 2 Timothy, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Notice he didn't say tribulation. Notice he didn't say the great tribulation. The church won't go through the great tribulation, but will the church receive persecution? Yes, it's happening right now as we speak. Right now as we speak as the sisters of perpetual indulgence. And their anti-Christ you know, movement. Gay men dressed up as nuns and looking like clowns. They look like mimes. What a disgusting display. They need Christ. They need Christ. And they're persecuting the church. And it's starting, it's starting, folks. It's coming to a theater near you, in stereo, where available. It's coming. Are you ready? You better get ready. You don't have to battle them. You just speak the truth in love. Just stand your ground. Don't cave in to the truth whatsoever. But, what did, um, but Peter lacked spiritual discernment. Jesus knew exactly what was happening. Peter didn't. But spiritual discernment is very important for us. What does it tell us in Proverbs? There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Very often, the thing that the world is so concerned about and seems so right can be so deadly in God's sight. Do you understand that? Love is one of those things. The Beatles said back in the 60s, all you need is love. But they didn't define it, did they? All you need is love. Everybody, you know, and then, you know, all you need is love. Well, define, what is it that you mean by that? Well... Take a drink and pass it around, bro. Take a hit and pass it on. All you need is love. Wonderful love. 
But today, love is celebrated, it's lifted up regardless of whether it's forbidden or sinful. Can there be a forbidden and sinful? Yes, there can be. The love between a husband and a wife, a love between us and God, between our family members and uh, friends, that's all right and good. But when love is expressed in fornication, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, when there is homosexuality, when there is incest or even bestiality or pedophilia, just saw on the news yesterday a man busted for bestiality. Yeah, the world is such a wonderful place. It's an abomination, and yet the world calls this love. It's one of those things that they hold close. Well, it's love. Leave it alone. God's, God is love. And it's like, well, God has the right to define love, not you. And that is not love. That's aberrant. That's sin. Real love is holy and it's pure. God owns that. Nobody else. He can clearly define it. He expressed it. He demonstrated it on the cross. But spiritual discernment is so critical. What it, um, it's something that we need to pray for. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one of us, notice, for the profit of all. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. There it is. And the list goes on, but let's talk about this word discerning. The, the Greek word is diakrisis, and it means distinguishing, judging between what's happening. Notice it says, to another, discerning of spirits, including our own. And had Peter had discernment over his own thoughts before he spoke, he probably would have caught himself. This is a sobering thought because the words that we say, the things that come from our heart, that we speak from our mouth, are motivated by a spiritual reality. Do you know that? It's either being motivated by the Spirit of God or the Spirit of this world. And the world hears its own. And didn't we just read in John 10 that the good shepherd, his sheep hear him. They hear him. You know, there's a wonderful, sweet thing that shepherds will do. And I remember in Bethlehem, we were in a, in a field many, many years ago in Israel. And a young boy and a young girl were shepherding. You've heard me share this story. But they would come up, and there's all these sheep, dozens of them. And the, the young man had a little stick, and he's dressed kind of slovenly and he made this little sound with his mouth, and boy, they come running. They know their master's voice. They know the voice of the shepherd. We know the voice of our shepherd. The world marches to the tune of a different drummer. They're listening to somebody else, the Pied Piper, who's leading them straight to hell. And which one are you going to listen to? How often, how important are our words and our thoughts? Out of the abundance, Matthew 12, 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we need discernment. And before we start running around the church and telling people that we have discernment on them, we ought to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, and make sure that we're motivated by the Spirit of God. Yes, even as Christians. And Jesus was the most discerning. You recall in Matthew chapter 17, 
that when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your, to your disciples, but they could do nothing. And the disciples came to Jesus later on in that passage, and he says, Lord, why couldn't we cast them out? And Jesus said to them, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. He had perfect discernment over the situation. He was the master of spirits. Because he's the creator. That's why he could say to Legion, he could speak right to him and say, leave. There's a thousand of you rascals in this man, and I want you out of here now. Hit the bricks, and they went. Oh, but don't let us go. <laughs> Just send us in the pigs. Fine. Spiribs for somebody else. That's what deviled ham. They went down the cliff and perished in the sea. It's funny, you know, the Underwood deviled ham. I think it's funny. It's got the little picture, little devil with the pitchfork. I, there's, there's such a, I should put that up here. Not open, of course, because it stinks to the heavens. But even Paul exhibited great discernment. Remember in Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas were in prison, it says, now it happened, verse 16, that as he went to prayer, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling... And this girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim the way uh, to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. And the, the, what she's saying is true, isn't it? What she's saying is true. That's exactly what. And yet she was possessed by a devil. And she was saying the right thing. But the vessel that was saying it was, had everything to do with it. And so Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit. He addressed the spirit in the woman, the young girl. He says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Discernment. Paul had discernment. Peter lacked spiritual discernment. In this instance, and spiritual discernment is something that we need to be praying for. Notice, for the profit of all, not just ourselves. Because if you have discernment and you're in a group of people, you're going to have an understanding of what's happening here spiritually. And you're going to say, you know what, it's time for us to go. Or it's time for us to pray. Or it's time for us to get right in the middle of this mess and create a problem, you know, and really raise it. But to have discernment. Verse 23 but he turned to Peter and he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Think of that. How, how, what, a, what an awful thing this was for Peter. Just uh, seven verses ago, Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. And now Peter was brought low and rebuked by Jesus due to his lack of spiritual discernment. To you I will give the keys to the kingdom, Peter. And on this rock of what you said, on that rock, that truth, I'll build my church. And Peter's going, yes. <laughs> Can I get that nice car with the leather seats? Corinthian leather, of course. I want the whole thing wrapped nice and beautiful. And now Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. For you savorest the thing of men instead of the things of God. 
And Jesus is here speaking to the spirit again, just like Paul did to the woman when Paul addressed the spirit. Jesus is addressing the spirit that is motivating Peter. Because Peter wasn't motivated by the spirit of God, but rather by the spirit of Antichrist. And this does not mean that Peter was possessed by Satan, no. But the thought behind it was satanic in origin. Demon possession and being influenced by demonic ideas are two totally different things. Neither are good. But if we as believers are careless, this can even happen to us as well. What does it tell us in Luke? It says that a certain, it came to pass... This is Luke 9, verse 51. It came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, speaking of Jesus, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, because that was the plan of God. And sent messengers before his face, and they went, and they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? That's a great idea, guys. They're not receiving me? Smoke them. Let me put a little lighter fluid. Go for it. Let's watch the show. But he turned and rebuked them, and he said, You do not know what spirit you are of. You don't know what spirit you are of. You claim to be mine, and yet you want to kill people. But the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He hasn't come to destroy life, but to save it. Right? He's not interested in killing people. There's a time when he comes back in his second coming that that's going to happen. But until then, we live in the age of grace. And isn't it a great time to receive Christ? I want to be on his loving side. Anybody, raise your hand if you want to be on the, on the right side of, of all this. Because the other side, let me tell you, is as loving and wonderful as God is, just the opposite in his rage and anger and wrath is true as well. I do not want to see, I don't even know that I want to see it, although we will be front row because we're going to be coming back with him in this battle. And he is going to do all the work. With his mouth, he's going to consume his enemies. But James and John, they weren't discerning over their own hearts. They were careless in their speech, which sounds like Peter. Sounds an awful lot like me sometimes. But I'm learning. I'm growing. Which is why we are exhorted by Solomon. What did he tell us? He says, keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. Isn't that the truth? I just spout off things and I'm not even careful about what I say. So important for us to have a handle on this little member in our mouth, this tongue that boasts great things, that sets on fire the hell. That's what James tells us. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let it be established. Let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right hand or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. So we get into this next section, verses 24 through 26, and this is where uh, many have, been, have called this the cost of discipleship. So then Jesus said to his disciples, verse 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him, take, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And notice that Jesus never seduced people to follow him with promises and immediate rewards. He never did. Most of our Christian experience is one of toil and planting seeds and of heartache 
and pain even. And not necessarily seeing great results in the immediate. Does that, res- does, that respond- does that resound with anybody? Have you noticed the Christian life is a lot like that? Well, it is. There's great joy and there's great peace, but there's also great heartache involved and great patience and not seeing the things that we want. We don't see things immediately. We have to be patient. We have to wait. And that's a fruit of the Spirit. And we can't, don't let ourselves be weary in well-doing. In fact, doesn't it tell us that in Galatians? Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. And notice in verse 24 again, if anyone desires to come after me, let him let deny himself and take up his cross. Notice, take up his cross. In Mark's gospel, there's an event recorded for us of, of a very similar thing. In Mark chapter 10, verse 17, you know it very well. It says, as he was going on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery and murder and don't steal and don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said, I've done all these things. And then Jesus, verse 21, looking at him, loved him. And I love that. I love that God put that in there. The Holy Spirit made sure that he didn't look at him with contempt and go, you are just a rotten seed of Satan. He didn't say that. He saw right through the guy, Jesus, the discerner of spirits. He was looking right through the young man and going, oh my goodness. You don't even know, do you? He didn't say that to him, but that's what Jesus is thinking. I know you perfectly. So he looked right through him and he says, He looked at him, and he loved him. What was the expression on Jesus' face at that time, I wonder? He looked at him, he loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell whatever you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, take up your cross, and follow me. Notice that the rich young man was not willing to sell all. He was not willing to deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus. By his reaction, he was proving that he did not love his neighbor, and he certainly didn't love God. But I need to tell you something, that following Jesus, and there's a lot of people who I think think this, and it's it's not a right thought. Many people think that following Jesus means that you have to sell everything and give it to the church or give it to the poor. No, you don't. But for this young man, I think it's good for us to be willing to take whatever we have, and if God really puts a finger on it, you pray about it, and he's continuing to put it on your heart, and it becomes something very then by all means, give it up to whatever he wants you to give it to. But if you're wealthy, and you've done it by honest means, there's nothing wrong with wealth. The, 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 the patriarchs were wealthy. Abraham and Isaac, they had large herds, very wealthy men in their time. He's not interested about that, but the heart in it. Because as soon as he made this declaration to this young man, the young man walked away. But it was important because the Lord knew exactly what was on this young man's heart. And there's no mention of this young man coming back at all, but rather, as we'll soon see, he would rather gain the whole world and lose his own soul. So going on here, 
in Mark's gospel, he says, Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Think of that picture in your head. You can't even get their lips through a needle. Let me tell you, camels are spitting they, like, they love to spit. If you go to Jerusalem with us next year and you get to ride a camel, watch out for their mouth. Because, boy, they smell something really bad. <laughs> but he says, it's, it's like, uh, can a camel go through the eye of a needle? Uh, you know, it'd be like a rich man trying to enter the kingdom of God. Notice that he didn't say it was impossible, but very difficult, because many are wealthy who strove hard to get their wealth because wealth was what their idol was. It was the thing that governed them. Thing that governed them. Does wealth govern you? That's the problem. Not that you're wealthy, but does it govern you? Does it have a... And, and there's one of the costs of discipleship. If God puts a finger on something, am I willing? Being willing is the battle. And then if God says, hey, I want you to do this with this, you just say, yes, Lord. That's a challenge. Other people I know, and I know some of them that are like this, they were good stewards with their money and God blessed them and they are prayerfully generous. They're not stingy and cold and holding everything close to the chest. They've, they've worked honestly for their finances. They've been good stewards all their lives and now they're in a place where prayerfully they are generous. Notice that I said prayerfully. Not one of these guys standing out in the corner and just, you know, having a bag of money. Hey, throwing it out for everybody. It's $100 bills and people are picking it up and going and buying crack cocaine and going and buying a couple more bottles of vermouth. You know, they're, they're going through all this stuff. No, discerning in your, even in your giving. Directfully, purposeful in your giving. That's what God wants. Someone who's prayerfully generous. And they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it's impossible, but not... But not with God, for with God all things are possible. And Peter began to say, See, we've left all and we've followed you. It's a cost for the disciples. They left everything and they followed him. Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Oh, I hate that. In the Rob Standard Version, the RSV, that little phrase is scratched out. I found some papyrus in my backyard buried in a little jar and, I, and, and it didn't add up so I just made my own scripture and I, I, I like I want all this stuff but not with persecutions I scratched that out it didn't happen and in the age to come he says eternal life that I like persecutions now eternal life later suffering now glory later Notice the disciples left all, they followed Jesus. Jesus tells them that they will be rewarded, not only in this life. I know Pastor Jeff has said this, but you know he, he knows people all over the world that he's ministered to and they're friends with, and he can go over to China. He doesn't have to get in a hotel. There's a family over there. 
that will gladly take him in. We can go to Bulgaria and there's people that'll take us in there. They'll feed us and they'll lodge us and we'll go around and share with the different churches in the area. We've done that a few times. So we've got houses and friends and families and mothers and fathers and kids and everywhere. They're everywhere. And that's what he's talking about. And maybe even some of you have lands and houses and there's nothing wrong with that. Just make sure you give me your address. Just kidding. But notice... Verse 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Notice, take up his cross. It's been said that a cross is an I, capital I, with the, with the I with the, with, with, with the crossed out. A cross is an I crossed out. It's not about me. It's not about I. no. It's about Jesus. It's not about I, it's about Christ. It's an I. A cross is an I crossed out, and we are to take up our own cross. Notice that, our own cross. Jesus doesn't expect us to bear his cross. He bore his cross on Calvary. Now we are exhorted to take up our own cross and follow him. This cross was an instrument of shame and death. It's a denial of self. Maybe it's a a, a thing in your life, some malady that you have. It's a cross that you have to bear. It's different from everybody else's, but it's a cross that you have to bear, your cross. Jesus bore his cross. You have to bear your own, and that's why Jesus would say, now come and take up the cross, not his cross, but your cross, and follow Jesus. Me, he says. And you know that the form of capital punishment for the Jews was stoning. It was not crucifixion. Jesus and his disciples were very much aware of this form of capital punishment. They saw it frequently as the Romans would put people to death and hang them and and crucify them. And it was going to be the way that Jesus would be put to death and ultimately Peter as well. I find it interesting that the prophets foretold that Christ would not be stoned to death but that he would be crucified. Did you ever notice that? It's a very Jewish thing to be stoned. But think of how precise the prophecies are. He's not going to be stoned. He's going to be crucified. Psalm 22, David tells us that. You can read the whole psalm, and I encourage you to do that. He says, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet, speaking as if Christ was that David was like in the first person speaking of Christ as he hung on the cross nearly a thousand years before it actually came to pass. They pierced my hands and my feet. That's crucifixion. In Zechariah 12, verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, and then they will look on me whom they pierced. Now, other than Jesus... The Apostle Paul knew more than anything, more than anyone, this idea of taking up his cross and following Jesus. We're just going to look at a couple of these and we're going to move on. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, it says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, Paul says, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we even despaired of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivers us. 
who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, and whom we also trust that he will still deliver us. Do you see that? He knew. He knew what this idea of taking up the cross was. In 2 Corinthians 11, are they Hebrews? Are they Israelites? Well, so am I, these people who are making fun of Paul and claiming to be something. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes with the flagellum, minus one, because they're so gracious and merciful. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, stoned with rocks. Three days I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, perils of robbers, perils of my countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils from false brethren, in weakness and toil, weariness, sleeplessness, hunger and thirst, fastings, and cold and nakedness, besides all these other things, that which comes upon me daily, my deep concern for the church. Paul knew very well this idea of taking up the cross. And some of you have a cross to bear. And maybe you're angry with God because it's still an issue in your life. There may be something going on in your life and it's a cross for you. It's a, it's a thing of death. It's a thing of shame. It's something that you're, you're not happy with. It's something that God is using to conform you to his image. He's using it. The cause of it, I have no idea. The reason behind why God allows certain maladies in one life and in someone else's is between you and God. And sometimes you might not even know the reason, but one day you will. And when God reveals it to you, you will say, like Solomon in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You may not understand it now, and you may never understand it on this side of, the, of, of glory, but I, I want to tell you that when you get to heaven and you can say, Lord, why did you allow this in my life? And he's going to say, here's the reason. And he's going to tell you, and you're going to start to weep, and you're going to like, God, you are so faithful. Had you not did that in my life, I would have been an arrogant wretch, and I would have turned my back on you, but you kept me under. You kept me dependent upon you because you knew what I, was, what I would do had you not put a governor on me. Maybe your illness is, is keeping you settled. It's keeping you dependent. Only God knows the reason. And remember, he's still building your character, and he's also still building your faith. Never forget that. Paul said in Philippians, he said this, he says, What things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Notice this. There's nothing compared to knowing you. And to having a knowledge of you, to have this relationship. Everything else is like refuse. And isn't that a wonderful heart? Isn't that the heart that you really want? May we, be, may we get to that place. Allow yourself to be challenged. 
He says, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. That's not a popular message. I'm surprised you're not all running out of here. That's not a feel-good message, brother. I came to, I was seeking something better than this, and, and, you know, and I wanted to feel good about myself. I wanted my self-esteem to be lifted up. Hey, listen, there's plenty of churches you can do that. But the word of God is the word of God. And I find that faithful are the wounds of a friend. When I am told the truth, even though he slay me, yet I will worship him. I will thank him. Isn't that what Job said? Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him, the father of all spirits, who knows all things. Oh, my goodness. I remember just, you know, just a small thing. You know, we were in Florida at Christmas, this last Christmas, and we had these great plans to see my mom, who I only get to see once a year. And we'd divide between Kathy's family and my family, and we'd spend five days with her mom and dad and the wonderful people. They're going to be here next week, by the way. I hope you encourage them and say hello to them. And then we were going to spend five days with my mom. Well, somewhere on the plane coming from New York to Florida, I get COVID. After being vaccinated, of course, because that's what really kept me from getting it. But I'll digress. I digress. But I'll just keep it there. So, I get this COVID, and the whole family gets it, except for her dad. Her dad's like a bull, you know, he's he's not going to get anything. Everybody gets it. We're all coughing and hacking. We're all fine. We're we're not going to die. We're fine. But I couldn't go see my mother. And it's the one shot I get every year to see my mom, and she's got COPD, you know, and I don't know how, you know, I mean, God only knows how many years I have with her. And then I was sitting there bemoaning the fact that I got this thing, and now because of the powers that be, I got to be shackled to a post in my bed, you know. Because the government tells me that I need to shackle. I didn't shackle myself, by the way. I took walks in the neighborhood. Why? And then my brother and I, He calls me or I call him. We talk for five hours on the phone while I'm in my solitary confinement because of my COVID Chinese disease. So I'm there. And uh, and nothing against people of China, okay? Their their government, yes, that's a big problem, but the people are wonderful. Everybody got me? Good. So, but I get to spend five hours talking to my brother on the phone about the Lord. That would have never have happened. Never would have happened. But there I am, sitting on the bed with my orange juice and my vitamins D and C and zinc and, and quercetin, and I'm sitting there taking this stuff. Why, God? I want to see my mom. I can't see her. And then the Lord opens up this wonderful opportunity for me to speak with my brother. For five hours, we were on the phone, and we're talking about it all, and it was glorious. And I thought to myself, Lord, if that was what this was all about, it was all worth it. Even for my rest of my family to get it, that single event was worth it. Because I have no idea what you did in reality 
and the spiritual, what, what you did there, but I know it was good. Whoever desires, verse 25, to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is your life built upon? I would presume that everyone in here, your life is built on Christ, and you certainly would say that to me, and maybe that is true, and I hope that it is. What do you want for your life? What is your life built upon? Is it what you want for your life or is it God's will from your life, for your life? You know, people make their plans, they choose a profession, they go to college, begin their life without ever even asking the Lord what he wants to do with their life. And certainly as an unbeliever, you do that by default, right? And I remember doing that. I had a plan for my life. I went to college. I wanted to be a concert classical guitarist. And that's what I was going to do. And I was on my way. And in my senior year of my four-year degree, the Lord got a hold of me and changed me radically. Change of plans, Rob. And I was scared to death. But I'm like, you know what? If you have forgiven me and I know what you've done, I'll do whatever you want. I don't, I don't know how to do it. I got $100,000 in school loan debt that I got to pay back. I have no idea how I'm going to pay this off now that I'm dropping out. Actually, I went further to Eastman School of Music and I was going there for my master's. And I got, I got close to the end and I'm like, I can't lie to myself anymore. I don't even love this anymore. I'm living a lie. Nothing wrong with, you know, necessarily going through music school and all. Nothing wrong, but God's plan for me was different. So I was trying to do my own way. I had my own plans, and God, thank God, he interrupted because I'm living a life now that is greater than anything I could have ever deserved, and it is certainly more wonderful than anything I could have imagined. I'm blessed beyond measure. I'm like a kid in a candy store. I get to do this. And I get to talk and pray with all of you. I get to laugh with you. I get to cry with you. I get to help you move sometimes. But it's never too late to give your life to Christ. Even as a Christian, it's never too late to say, Lord, fix my mess. Even as a Christian, no matter how old you are, even if you're in your 90s, God can use you right now in whatever phase or season of life you're in. Trust in him, not in yourself. And don't have grandiose plans if you're 90 years old. You can do great and wonderful things in a wheelchair. You can do great and wonderful things with a walker. You can do great and wonderful things. Just be, let him do what he wants to do and be open to him. Sometimes the simple things, the small things, the things that the world will never clap and say, what a great person you are. Who cares about what the world thinks? I want to get to heaven and say, have him say, well done, good and faithful. You were in charge of just a small thing. That's all I wanted you to do. Think of John the Baptist. I only had six months of your life, John, and boy, what a firebrand. And look what you did. Prophesied in the scriptures hundreds of years for six months of your life, and you were snuffed out, and it didn't surprise me. You did exactly what, and you were faithful to death. Be faithful to death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Isn't that what Jesus said to the church at Smyrna in Revelation? Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you ever see that bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins? I remember seeing that. 
And some of the most unhappy people are those who have everything and yet they have nothing. And I've known people like this. They have all their wealth that they could want, but there's no peace at all in their hearts. Instead, there's guilt. They got their money by crooked means. Their marriage is on the rocks. Their kids are only close to them when they want something from them. The kids are not developing into responsible moral adults. And there's a feeling of failure and utter hopelessness and despair. And that describes a lot of very wealthy people. But God wants to say to you this morning that he loves you. And it's one step. Not 12 steps, one step program. Not a 12-step program, a one-step program. You come to Christ, that's it. Confess your sins and give it all over to him. And let him do with your life what he wants. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you will be the blessed person in all of the world and you're going to walk around with a smile and a joy and a peace in your heart that nobody, they would, they, would, they would pay big, big money to have what you have. And they don't realize that it's there for the asking. But it has to be in Christ. You can't buy it. You can't sell it. You have to receive it as a gift that someone else paid. Christ paid that gift. John Walvoord, a great Bible uh, teacher and a great commentator, he said, As the road to triumph differs for a disciple, so also does the reward. For the world, there is immediate gain but ultimate loss. For the disciple, there is immediate loss but ultimate gain. As Jesus pointed out, ultimately the man who loses his own soul in the process of gaining the whole world is exchanging his future glory for a temporary reward. There's an old saying that says everyone has their price. Everyone has their price. Have you heard that? I mean, maybe you don't because you're a believer, but there are people who do have a price. They don't even know what it is until it's presented to them, and then they bite the hook. Then they swallow the hook. Have you thought about that? Do you, ha do you have a price? Is there something that you would gladly do to compromise and to exchange this relationship with Christ? Some people will do it for anything. Would you rather amass great wealth and all the toys now at the expense of an eternity separated from God? Will people do it? <laughs> There's some people in the Bible that have done it. We don't have time to go here because we're really running late here, but I would encourage you to look at the life of Balaam, who the Bible says that he... Um, he, loved, uh, he, had the, he, he loved money. And instead of, you know, the, the king of, 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 of Moab wanted him to curse the people of God as they were going through the desert. And God spoke to Balaam and says, you speak what I tell you to speak and nothing more. And Balaam had the opportunity to get very rich and he must have later on, but he, inter he, he, he told them, well, I can't tell you to curse. I can't curse these people, but here's what you do. Get the young Moabite girls, the really good-looking ones, and have them go speak to the young Jewish boys, and nature will take over, and God will have to judge them himself. And that's what they did. Revelation tells us that that's exactly what Balaam did. And Balaam lost his life on a future raid for, against the Midianites, who was killed in that battle? Balaam. He loved the unrighteousness of money. And Judas Iscariot, 
giving the Lord over for 30 pieces of silver. And then Achan in Joshua chapter 7, taking the Babylonian garment and the silver and the gold, wanting it for himself. And ultimately, his whole family, he and his family were stoned and burned with all their possessions. He gained the whole world but lost his soul. Some people have a price. What are you willing to give up in exchange for your soul? For the Son of Man, verse 27, will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his work. Now this right here refers, uh, verse 27, refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ physically to the earth and the judgment that is going to take place. Yes, even after the judgment when he comes back in the, val- in the battle of Armageddon, there's going to be another judgment of nations. And you can read about that in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 46. It's, it's, a, it's a judgment of nations where they'll be separated, those who were supportive of Israel and those who weren't. And those who weren't will be cast into the lake of fire, into Gehenna. And this is what Jesus is speaking of in this context. And then he goes in verse 28 and he says, Assuredly I say to you, if the worship team can go ahead and come on up, we're going to take communion. Um, I'm going a little bit late as usual. Is there grace? Maybe? A few more minutes? Okay. So, verse 28 says, Assuredly, I say to you, Jesus says, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, much of ink, much ink has been written about this verse. But I want you to look in the very next verse in your Bible. What does it say? Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John into an exceedingly high mountain, and Jesus was transfigured before them. Verse 28 is referring to what is going to happen next. Okay? Because those three men, Peter, James, and John, and we'll look at this in more detail next week, but this is what verse 28 is speaking of. Now, In the original manuscripts, there was no chapter divisions. Those were added by the translators. So if you read verse 28 and go right into the next verse, everything makes sense to you, and you read the passage, and you're like, well, of course, that makes sense. Well, it's supposed to be that way. But we tend to read chapter by chapter, and we read a chapter, and then we forget about it, and we come back next week and finish the next chapter. We forget the context that's flowing through it. So what's really happening here is this last verse is uh, Jesus is going to be transfigured before Peter, James, and John on the mountain. In all three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this passage goes directly. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and each time it goes directly into the passage of the transfiguration. There's no break at all. There's nothing in there. It goes straight from that dialogue directly into The transfiguration. That is what this is referring to. They would see the glory of Jesus in a like like a a preview of what's going to happen at the second coming. They're going to see Christ in his glorified state. They're going to see the coming of the Son of Man in a preview, just the three of them. And I believe that that mountain may have been Hermon because they were up in that area of Caesarea Philippi in the north 
And Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in Israel. It's 9,232 feet above sea level. Above sea level. Very possible he was there. It doesn't really matter where he was, but he was transfigured. And they saw the glory of Jesus. When you read the first chapter of the book of Revelation, you see what Jesus is going to look like in his glorified state. I would encourage you, when you're having a really bad day, (laughs) read chapter 1 and read those physical attributes of our glorified Christ and let it blow you away. Let the beautiful, perfect visage of Christ, let let that, because that's who he is right now, that's him glorified right now in heaven before he comes and returns for the church to take us up off of this rock and transform us, and forever we will be with him. I'm looking forward to that. You looking forward to it? If you're looking forward to it, then let's worship. And then as the worship team is leading us in a song, just come on up and grab the elements and bring it back to your chair. We'll take it together, okay? Lord, we just thank you for these tokens and and what they represent to us. Lord, your body broken for us. Lord, and the blood that was shed on the cross for us, Lord. And we take these tokens, Lord, just in thanksgiving. Lord, how could we ever forget? Lord, you said do this often in remembrance of me, as often as you will do it. And so, Lord, we we do it because we recognize we live in a world full of distraction. And Lord, these tokens before us, they... They, uh, they show to us, Lord, they represent to us what you've done. And Lord, may we never forget that. And Lord, as we take it down deep inside of us, Lord, we pray that you would have more of us going forward than you've ever had. And so we honor you in this, and we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake of the, of the bread. You've heard this said before, but in the Middle East, having a, eating together is one of the most intimate things you can do in that first century. And in a sense, we've done that. We've, we've communed. Think of the unity that we have in this place. And just so thankful for all of you. I want to thank you for just your patience this morning. And I pray, guys, and, and all, your whole family would just be really blessed today. That God would just fill your, your family, your, your time together. I would encourage you to get out and enjoy the sunshine and the breeze. It's so beautiful out. And just breathe in the fresh, clean air. And give thanks to God for his goodness. And for how he has just given you a bounty of life. And how he continues to want to pour into, you, into your life. May the blessings of today be the sweetest Maybe that you've had in, in, in several days, several weeks, months, or even years. May the blessing on your family, all of you, just be incredibly wonderful today. That the very God of the creation who loves us will just be present with us and inhabit all your gatherings, all your feastings, and those second and third helpings of pie. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. God bless.